Darwinian triage. If you yes. want to live out in the middle of nowhere, there are you can you know, assume some risk. Yeah, here. I guess you do. Now, now, now stop. <laughs> Don't you think it bothered somebody of the nursing staff? This is, that we've talked about this before, and I think that Dayton's response is basically the one that is, makes the most sense. Hello, Rick Bucata. Greg Henry. And our special guest, Dr. Dighton Packard. We are at the uh, Paris Hotel where we're doing a small, intimate little course for mid-levels, PAs, NPs, and primary care doctors uh, who do emergency medicine. You're too modest, sir. <laughs> there are 1,150 people in there. More room. or less, more or less. But more in any yet. case, uh, Dighton is one of our um, invited speakers, and I thought we would take the opportunity, actually, to do this issue of Risk Management Monthly with uh, Dighton. If you don't know Dighton, you've been living under a rock. Uh, he is the Chief Medical Officer for uh, MCARE. And, and Dighton, how long have you been with them? I, as far as I know, you uh, I've known you for a long time, and you've been there uh, forever. Well, he had, that yeah. short, he had that short spell during the Civil War, but <laughs> other than that, he's been with them, I think, Rick. I've been with them since about 1975, Rick. Oh, that's and, okay. Uh, that's when I got out of my residency right, here. Right. Yeah, USC. Exactly. Dighton is also the, um, uh, the chair of the emergency department at Baylor University. I, I made a mistake of saying it was in Houston, I guess. That's, that's, that's a major sin. I didn't realize that. It's in Dallas, correct? Yeah, it is go. in Dallas. Yeah, it goes back to the 1940s. Someday I'll tell you the whole story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So well, Dighton and I sat on the board of the American College together for uh, six years. Mm -hmm. So in the in the 1990s. So uh, we've known each other a long, long time. So Dighton is our guest, and basically, uh, I had a couple of questions that we nobody I know is responsible for 11,000 providers in emergency medicine, except Titan. <laughs> and he's been doing it for a really long time. So yeah. if, if this fellow doesn't have a sense of uh, wh where we stand in terms of lawsuits and risk management, and uh, and I, I do want to talk about mid-levels, because that we're here for mid-levels, and I think that they are becoming a special source of uh, concern in terms of uh, risk management issues. Well, Rick, he has a lot more responsibility than you and I. You and I can't even take care of ourselves, and he can <laughs> handle 11,000 people. That's pretty good, you know. So, uh, Dighton, welcome. We're really happy to have you here. And uh, as you know, we spend a lot of time on this program talking about lawsuits and what's happening. So let us in on what, without getting into actual cases at uh, your shop, which I know you can't do, uh, where are you seeing it going? What are the trends? What's happening? Well, I mean, I think in general, it, it has a lot to do with what's going on in the state legislations. The states that have passed tort reform uh, are, are vastly different, I think, than the other states uh, today. Um, but we, we have been sort of chatting about what's new. What, what do we think we're seeing new? And I will tell you that we're definitely seeing uh, some new cases that have to do generally in the world of infection. But we're seeing cases now for spinal uh, abscesses uh, that are different than the usual. You know, I mean, we, when you look for somebody who comes in with pain, fever, and they use IV drugs, fine. But people who come in with no fever, just pain, uh, and say they don't use any IV drugs, that there's really no reason to suspect and do a CT of that spine. And then the next day, they have neurological loss, and it's too late. So we're starting to see those cases, and I really don't know why. 
I, I, I haven't been able to figure out what's changed about that. In the other world, in the infections, we're starting to see cases about quote-unquote missed sepsis. And, and I think this is prompted by this huge uh, push by the hospitals and, and medicine today on the sepsis in general and, and trying to decrease mortality. Miss sepsis, by the way, is somebody that comes in with an infection, you treat them appropriately, they go home and get worse uh, and come back. Well, that's missed sepsis. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it's very funny that you mentioned the uh, epidural abscess. Because throughout my career, been involved with it, had the same experiences you did. I think the organisms are different, and I think that the MRSA thing is part of this uh, situation. Uh, but I can't tell you how many cases I've had come in to me uh, to be looked at, medical legal cases now against emergency docs on that, on that abscess. The, the biggest problem we still have is documentation of the physical examination. What did you do? What did you tell them to do? And uh, I've seen fights over, they went home, but nobody said if you couldn't pee, you got to come back, that sort of thing. And now by the time they do make it back in, you know, when you actually come in and now your legs don't move well, they almost never get better. I mean, doing the operation may stop the progression, but it almost never <laughs> replaces the function that's lost. Yeah, the, my review of the literature says that uh, this is becoming more common rather than less common. We have uh, uh, more and more diabetics. We have more and more HIV patients. We have more and more people on steroids. We have a lot of people who are on these um, anti-arthritic uh, rheumatoid arthritis drugs, which immunosuppressants. are all, all yes. immunosuppressants, which Absolutely. didn't even exist, you know, 10 years ago. And uh, there's a lot more people with hardware in them uh, who've had knees and hips and surgery, their backs, and all of these uh, increase, the, increase the risk. And one of the problems is, is that um, the, 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 the damages associated with these things are so catastrophic, and, and they wheel in the people in the wheelchair kind of thing. So I guess that these are big lawsuits. They're typically missed on the first visit because you know people don't think of it. And I mentioned today, people just have to think when somebody comes in with back pain, to what is that temperature? And, you know, a lot of people feel the necessity to say, well, I, I must have done it at work. You know, they want to have some causality to, you know, well, I lift, I lift, I lift boxes at work. So must and so it's really easy to get led down the garden path to say, well, it's probably just a, a lumbar strain kind of thing. That's why specifics on the chart any difficulty with urination, yes or no? Uh, any problems with bowel movements, pain going down the legs, uh, loss of stool control, anything like that? I want yeses and nos that if I have to go defend this thing, it's not a question of whether you did it. It's there on the chart. Well, you, we've mentioned that we're at a course for, you know, primarily for our mid-levels. And this is a great case for mid-level because somebody who comes in who's 50 years old who says, I've got a little overdoer's backache, who do you think sees that in the emergency <laughs> department? Uh, very often it's the mid-level. And, and what we're doing is we're all sitting around this table as gray hairs, but a lot of our people aren't gray hairs. And when you look at them and you say, hey, let's decrease utilization, 
low back pain is where everybody goes after. We're doing too much imaging, quit doing that. And so now we have people that are being told to do less. And when at the same time I'm coming in, I'm saying, be very careful, be very aware of these people when they don't have a great reason you know, you need to do a complete neurological. You, you need to do that famous rectal. Uh, <laughs> and, and you better be really careful what you tell people. I, I couldn't agree more. The problem is we're almost telling people two different things. Yes, exactly. Well, I, I think it's fair to say this, that a lot of the imaging that is done is a social imaging and not a real question-answering imaging. Um, I don't think we should be doing as many plain films of the back as we are. I don't think we should be doing plain CTs because if you think there's a perispinous abscess, there is only one test that I'm aware of that tells a neurosurgeon what they need to operate on, and that's the MRI. And I know it's inconvenient, and I know nobody wants to deal with it, but the bottom line is don't do a bunch of other crappy little tests and waste time get to the answer you can't make a sixth grader out of three second graders no you can't rick you got to do the right test i noticed you doing the math in your head i was in trouble there actually greg i I, let me just emphasize the point you made about the mri there's absolutely true no neurosurgeon is going to operate that i know of without the mri the the problem is in many of our institutions even where they have an MRI they don't have techs on 24 hours because you can't find them so what the radiologists are telling you to do is to do that CT as a screening exam and what happens as you well said what happens is the eventual diagnosis and operation gets delayed well guess what we're getting sued for is that delay as well right a diagnosis is ultimately going to be made 100% of the time it's just when see I think that this is where Emergency medicine needs to hold grand rounds with radiology and bring your literature because there is no literature. I know they say that over the phone, Dighton, but in the, in, in the uh, calm of a meeting when everybody's looking at the literature, there isn't any of them who are going to defend doing a CT scan when, when they know an MRI. You know what? If it was their brother or, or their mother, uh, even their mother-in-law who they thought was actually, that was a genuine question. Is it compressing the spinal cord, yes or no? They'd get the right test. And I know it's inconvenient. Well, life's inconvenient sometimes, and we got to go ahead and do it. There are a couple of tip-offs, and, you know, the, the obvious drug user, and that, that's too easy. Um, but uh, these things disproportionately tend to be in the thoracic spine. And most people don't have thoracic spine problems. The problems with the back are the parts that bend, like the neck and the lumbar area. So if somebody comes in and says, you know, I got this pain be- between my shoulder blades, that is not, that's not typical. The other thing is that, yes, you've got to check the temperature. SED rates are considered, I know in most things they're not considered very good, but they're considered a good screening test in these cases. And there's another thing that people can do, which is, very atypical for musculoskeletal pain is physically pushing on the spinous processes. And if you elicit pain by doing that, that, man, that, that should set off the alarm in your head. But as I mentioned this morning, one of my concerns is that there are some physicians, there was a doctor in our group who, uh, the guy had a back pain. I saw the chart. He was seeing the patient. 
I noticed a guy in a little low-grade fever, and I said, have you considered a spinal epidural abscess? And, and he said to me, say what? Say what? <laughs> he had never heard of it. If you've never heard of it, you can never diagnose it. And these are the needle in the haystacks, unfortunately. That's for sure. And you can certainly understand how they would get mistriage, mistriage over to the, uh, the minor, uh, uh, whatever they call it, area. And as a matter of fact, do you remember the case that we did where, um, it wasn't too long ago, where um, a doctor saw a mailman in his office and he had some kind of funky symptoms in his arms. And the doctor wrote a note. So go to the ER and tell him I'm a little concerned that you may be having a stroke or something like that. Well, he went to the ER and the triage, something happened. And this note got, got misplaced. Triage nurse says, oh, you're a mailman? And you got something in the ER. It's probably some musculoskeletal or carpal tunnel. Sends him over to the urgent care where they diagnose carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> the guy comes in two days later with a stroke. And this is a great example of the things that you've talked about before, what they call anchoring bias. Anchoring bias, where exactly you, right. Basically, you well, they must be a minor problem. They're over in minor, the minor area. And there's this prejudice that builds up, and you just get led down the garden path. I think everybody in the country ought to have to go to at least two years of medical school so that they can at least carry on damn intelligent conversations with us about what they've got. But this anchoring bias happens to each and every one of us. And sometimes you have to tell yourself, Greg, because they're here doesn't mean they don't have bad disease. And and uh, Dighton and I were talking earlier today. I think the toughest job in the world is is urgent care. Because on the big side, someone comes in with an auto accident and, uh, you know, they've got penetrating this or that Pretty much that's protocol stuff. We know what's going to happen to them. I think the 80-year-old lady who says, I don't feel good, is the, is a much tougher case that needs a much smarter doctor because it's not protocol. And you can do overkill, and we don't want to do that. I don't know if that's a good phrase. Actually. Yeah. Well, yes, that's right. Let's say, let's say we can be overly involved <laughs> in the workup uh, or, or under but I think that that's where there is some judgment involved as to what we're uh, what we're going to do, and uh, we just all have to be careful of it. It's Titan. Uh, I got a question for you. When you bring a new mid-level on board, just like when you bring a new a recent residency graduate on board, what's your plan or program to make them safe during that first six months of time? So they get to learn your system, the rights and wrongs. And you and I both know that half of medicine is understanding how to make the system work. What's your plan for mid-levels? How do you bring them along to be mature providers of care? I don't know what you do to make anybody safe. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're, we are a little bit more, um, let's say, in, instructive with our mid-levels than we are with residency graduated emergency physicians. Um, and, and the reason for that is that most of the mid-levels that we are working with now are not coming out of five years of emergency medicine background. They're, they're coming out of a family practice type background. And so what we do is we try to actually do a much longer orientation if you want to look at it for that matter we basically work with them 
exclusively in the area of what we in MCARE call our fail-safes, which are really programs aimed at the big risk areas uh, with peer-reviewed literature as the basis for the education. And then what we do is we put them with other people. We don't put them out alone for a number of months. And, and quite frankly, that varies when you have to review what they're doing and where they are. Some are better than others. Uh, but it's almost like an internship, if you want to look at it that way. Um, and we try to do that with all of them uh, to whatever extent that we can. Uh, it depends on the staffing and what you can do. But we're much more instructive with those people than we are with the uh, residency graduates. Well, uh, about three or four years ago, uh, we hired our first uh, PAs and one nurse practitioner. And uh, the PAs were un, were basically, most of them were new graduates. And um, we adopted the policy that we would see every patient that they saw. Certainly it's not the most uh, cost-effective way to do business, but it's certainly, I think, also the safest. And some groups have that policy and some groups uh, don't. But one of the reasons we're doing this course is exactly because of what Dighton said. Most of them... Uh, these folks come out of a primary care orientation training and background. And um, 25 years ago, we said, uh, the work in the ER, you probably ought to be board certified, uh, if, it, if at all possible. Now, certainly there's rural areas where that's not going to happen. But in Los Angeles, you can't get a job in a hospital without being board certified in emergency medicine. But on the other hand, I know groups where 30% of their patients are being seen by uh, mid-levels and the question is well what is their certification in emergency medicine the answer is they don't have it california emergency physicians uh, one of their people was talking last year at the national meeting and said 40 percent of their cases uh in that group had been seen by mid-levels now is this are we talking out of both sides of our mouths at the same time i mean should should there be a list and I, and i've thrown this out a dozen times Nobody wants to talk about it or go on record or be in my uh, column that I write to say, here's the list of 25 things that I think ought to be presented to the supervising doc. See, because I, I said today, third visits got to be run by the supervising doc. Somebody's been in three times in the last 24 hours. Don't take that on yourself. Don't do it. If they're in there twice, don't do it. Yeah, I'd say twice. Yeah. If somebody comes back, there's a bounce back. I, I think a physician has to see them. But, Greg, you're, you're going down the path that I think that everybody's afraid to go down. Yeah. yeah. Been down those before. <laughs> we, we, we need to make rules. Yeah, of some kind. You know, the, uh, the, the questions, you know, we're kind of coming up today about who should be seen, where are the problems. Uh, again, this repeat visit. Uh, we were talking about a case earlier today where somebody was sent in uh, from an outside doctor because they wanted an opinion in the emergency department. They thought the patient was getting worse. Now, I guess it's maybe I'm old-fashioned. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. And and uh, high-button shoes, I think, are still just fine. But this idea that a doctor has seen a case, sends him in, and the PA doesn't show that case to a doctor, I mean... I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, there's something not right about about that sort of thing. It's like the patient with abdo abdominal uh, pain whose vital signs aren't getting better, you know. I think that there ought to be a list or at least a grouping of patients uh, 
where the where there ought to be a fairly low threshold of running it by somebody else. Well, and, and it goes beyond just emergency medicine. Um, many of our specialty proceduralists mm-hmm. are using mid-levels extensively. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Particularly to do their admission history and physical. Um, and in and, and my hospital, my personal hospital, we have a policy that says anybody who gets admitted to the hospital out of the emergency department has to see the attending emergency physician. And, 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 and you know, it could be a broken leg, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a 22-year-old. But the point is, is that we were worried as a hospital that that person could get admitted through the ED, have a procedure in the hospital, leave the hospital, and never really have a history and physical done by a physician. Right. Exactly. Uh, this happens with a, particularly a lot of the specialties, i.e., um, oral surgery. Uh, they're, now they're going to handle a fractured jaw. Well, there's actually somebody who's actually going to listen to their heart. Uh, there may be a fair amount of trauma in fracturing the jaw. Maybe there's something else that has to be taken care of. Who knows? But whatever it is, this is uh, th- these problems are not going to go away. And um, I, I don't know what else we're going to do. By the way, are you guys staffing any place where you're using just PA coverage and then they're appearing on a screen telemedicine someplace to get opinions? No, we are not. However, I have heard about uh, some systems that have some very small rural hospitals that are doing that within the system. Right. Uh, but we aren't doing that currently, no. Yeah, well, I was talking to the, one of the, uh, the staff people at the University of Iowa who said that that is not uncommon in the state of Iowa, that some of these hospitals are so small that, uh, that that's the way they're doing it. And I, sometimes you've got to wonder, if a hospital is that small and they don't have that much backup, would the community be that worse, much worse if that hospital closed? They consolidated some of those into a large enough hospital where they had specialists available and on call and emergency docs in the department to kind of help out here. I, it, there's no simple answer, but um, I, I just don't think we've found the balance yet in a lot of places. Well, actually, at the uh, ASAP meeting, I attended the uh, section on rural medicine. And they made it very clear that there's a substantial subset of hospitals where, in fact, uh, the staffing is very limited. Uh, and, in fact, many times they do have a mid-level is exclusively in the department who may be able to call some of that one of the primary care doctors. But the problem is, is that, you know, these hospitals are far apart. These are in the middle of nowhere. In Los Angeles, you can hit a hospital, throw a rock in any direction, you'll hit a hospital. Yeah, I've about done that the, several times, right? They, they the don't like it, yeah. Of, of Iowa, how, how, how close are these hospitals? Well, the ultimate example is Alaska, where they have, it's the size of the United States east of the Mississippi River. Two and a half times the size can, of Texas, you can see by Russia. the way. You can see Russia from You can there. see Russia from Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Well, more than that, you can see the urgent care center in Russia and go over and get some care, I think. But they only have 10 hospitals that are staffed 24 hours a day by doctors in the ED. 10. Everything else is is in places where they put it on the TV and send it in to somewhere else to be looked at. And uh, just imagine that. Ten hospitals it's in that size. Darwinian triage. If you yes. want to live out in the middle of nowhere, there are you, you assume some risk. <laughs> yeah, here. I guess you do. Um, 
Dayton, one of the things we were, um, so basically with the mid-levels, you've got this uh, program where you kind of supervise them pretty closely for some period of time. Um, what about in, uh, in practices to limit the risk of malpractice uh, in, uh, incidents for your physicians as well? Are there any kind of um, generic kinds of things you do? I don't want you to get into any of the trade secrets, but um, I would think that that would become uh, an issue for a group like yours? Yeah, we have programs that are both web-based and on CD-ROM and that type of thing that we give to all of our directors uh, to, as they go through, you know, programs through a year, they they discuss and go through those, and they make, it makes them, sets them up for quality metrics to review whether they're, you know, doing what we think is the right thing to do. But it, But it's all stuff that y'all talked about for years it's stuff that we've known for 25 years uh we just keep forgetting uh <laughs> you know i mean it, you know when uh when asap ran an, a, a an insurance company you know the number one program was we missed heart well guess what the number one problem is we're still missing heart disease yes uh it, it's just a little bit more you know maybe uh in depth now that we talk about it but we, we, we know the right approach to many of these things, and it's just a matter of teaching that approach. We do have some web-based courses that we require all of our physicians and mid-levels to do every year mm -hmm. uh, just to try to keep top-of-mind awareness. You know, um, I've, I've, I've often, often talked to Gregory about risk over the years when we've been together because it's an interest of both of ours. And, and you know, one of the ways you can sort of maybe bring everything uh, to the surface for a doctor is to have them sued every other year. That sort of gets their attention. <laughs> yeah. You know, un unfortunately, that's really a bad way to do it. And and luckily, the suits, significant suits, are a rare thing, really, uh, for each individual physician. And so you keep hounding them about these things, and they, they tend to sort of, you know, not take it too seriously because it doesn't happen to them. And they don't think it's going to happen to them. And, and it's a very difficult problem of how we prepare our people for this. I once uh, made a suggestion that in the residencies, what you ought to do is take every resident, and the first week they're in the residency, sue them. Take one of their cases, invent something, and sue them. So they have to show up for the next three years because that's how long it takes. At a deposition, at a this, at a that, they ought to get all these damn pieces of paper that come in, process, and then at the end you can say, eh, we were just kidding, or whatever it is. But the, but the bottom line is they don't know until they've had the experience. And then all of a sudden you get their un, uninterrupted attention. When, when their name appears on a, uh, on a legal process. Although there is a problem with that, too, is that, um, and I've seen it, you've seen it, where physicians who have been sued become almost paralyzed and become ordering machines thereafter because um, they are so concerned that, well, they didn't do a CBC on that one, so I'm going to do, you know, from now on, I'm going to do this. Right, so right. They, there's this tendency to uh, overcompensate. Yeah, that's right. And become an, an ordering machine. The Stockholm you know, Syndrome. You, they they, they, they uh, uh, side with the aggressor. See, your recommendation is everybody gets sued periodically. My recommendation has been everybody have an organ removed every five years. 
because <laughs> you know an organ that you don't need so that you are on the receiving end so that you get to get to understand that that buzzer that you have is not connected to the wall you can push that thing all you want and <laughs> yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody's coming got that's right exactly. you've got a gown that doesn't cover your tush and uh and you know you you can take that appendix out. You can take that you can get that rid of that gallbladder. That's not going to help you at all. Yeah. Women they can get, when they're done with their uteruses they can give that up. They don't need that anymore. Yeah, well they said the same thing about your testicles too, Rick. But <laughs> I uh, think we'll I have on. given them up. I'm yeah, I think you have. Uh, wait, wait. Well, well, Titan's here. I don't want him to yeah, get away without. So we, we got need some to other suck questions. This man's brain out. We here. just you know, clean him. Um, writing orders. What do you? What's your policy in your group? I mean, you must have hundreds of hospitals. Do you let your guys write orders on an admitted patient that some other doctor's admitting and some other doctor's getting the first day Blue Cross Blue Shield fee for? What are we doing here? Well, first I'll give you the uh, political answer, and then I'll give you my personal answer. Does that make you feel better? Yeah. Uh, the, The political answer is, look, this is a local decision. It's always done at the local hospital, and quite frankly, people can come up with fairly good reasons why we should write some orders. We as emergency physicians should write orders. Um, If you're in in a hospital and the docs, you you got three or four docs taking call every third or fourth night, uh, they would never get any sleep if you admitted them. And if you made them come in and write orders and all that kind of stuff, they don't know the patient. You actually know the patient more about it than they do. And so writing these quote-unquote holding orders with all the restrictions that you've always talked about, yep. Gregory, um, you know, makes good sense. Where, where I get a little bit contrary to that is in the big cities where you have hospitalists, for God's sakes, all right? And then the hospitalists want us to write orders for those patients. Um, and, and, and that's where I will definitely draw that line. And I've drawn it many, many times. And I've lost a few times. I don't always win these arguments, Greg. But um, I will tell you that what I see time and time again is they say, just write a few little holding orders. You know, Two years later, that holding order sets five or six pages long and includes every poly, you know every guideline that known to man and you're basically taking care of that patient for the first 24 hours in the hospital exactly uh, and and so is there some middle ground here uh, I, I think you have to make that decision hospital by hospital every every situation that can be unique um, but me personally in my hospital I don't write orders yeah which you're in a I'm at level a one. Hospital. You're in a huge place. Yeah. You're at Baylor. <laughs> Come on. Although I, I had an ex- uh, a case long, long time ago at our hospital, and a uh, doctor asked me to write admitting orders, and I was new there, and you know I wanted to please the medical staff, so I write some admitting orders. And um, two days later, uh, I get a call from the floor. Uh, this patient's ready for discharge. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, well, I'm the ER doc. This patient was never seen by the primary care doctor. He he was on autopilot. Uh, I don't know. The doctor never saw him, and they wanted me to come up there and sign out the discharge instructions. Now, now, now stop. (laughs) Honest to goodness. Don't you think it bothered somebody of the nursing staff that... Uh, hey. This is like putting the bullet through the cheese. It found a hole, and uh, there was every <laughs> safety thing that you could have thought of that would have prevented that did not work. Yeah, yep. 
Remember George C. Scott's movie, The Hospital, where, again, he to assure an hour of uninterrupted time, he pushed the nurse call button, <laughs> said that would guarantee that nobody would come and interrupt him in the room. That's probably right. You know, the, uh, you mentioned uh, about um, holding orders. Yeah. Uh, this is part of a list that uh, Ralph Badnowski, Bad Ralph. Bad Ralph. Uh, that's Bad Ralph. Uh, it's a lingo name on the email kind of thing. He, yeah. He wanted to know what uh, – we've talked about this before, and I think that Dighton's response is basically the one that is, makes the most sense. You you can't take a black and white across a huge group of physicians and say this is our policy, but we all know where we'd like to stand on this. Yeah, we but there's got to be the some safety mechanisms, Rick, that I don't know how after six hours – okay, now it's midnight. Okay, now it's 7 a.m., wouldn't the nurses be a little upset that there's no new orders? <laughs> Honest to goodness. <laughs> more, more than that, how would anybody know he's ready for discharge if nobody'd seen him? Maybe that's the well. You know, a lot of these hospitals, the nurses really run this show kind of thing. They're, yeah, these, yeah. These cases are on autopilot. Yeah. Um, let's let's read this case. Let's read this letter from David Rosen, who's one of our readers, and he's with a group in Santa Fe. One of their doctors was asked to develop protocols and provide medical direction for the local voluntary ski patrol in return for a free ski pass and parking. That sounds like remuneration to <laughs> sounds, me, Rick. That sounds like money to me. Yeah, and uh, their group uh, currently provides, uh, for a minimal fee, medical direction for the local city, county, and aeromedical pre-hospital providers. Again, no good deed goes unpunished. David, let me let let's get some uh, opinions here. Their corporate attorney and malpractice carry believes they would be covered for malpractice liability. What? What do you mean? May be covered? <laughs> I don't understand that. Yeah, it's black and white. You either are. Not. It's interesting because he had the opportunity to talk with an attorney who specializes in ski resorts. In fact, he said there's an association of ski defense attorneys. There's a, there's a club for everything, apparently. Yeah. But in any case, this guy met with David and said, um, you know, these ski resorts have serious uh, coverage in terms of risk. $35 yeah. million dollars is, is kind of the rule. And that you need to get yourself as a named insured under that. Your, your malpractice is going to be a hiccup compared to what these people are ultimately insured for. Dighton, any thoughts? <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, he's not covered. You know that. Yeah. You know. Um, also, the ski resorts. Um, it, when you when you buy a, a lift pass, as simple as a lift pass, um, you, you actually sign a waiver. Oh, really? And 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 then it's a lot of fine print. But what it says is, I'm not responsible for anything dumb you do up on the slope. Well, nope. putting a you huge know. lever on your foot is ba fundamentally dumb, isn't it? <laughs> this thing's like seven foot long on your ankle. Well, from Newtonian <laughs> mechanics standpoint, we know what's going to happen. I mean, Newton was right. But there are he, a lot of injuries. I mean, I mean, every one of us has some friend or colleague right? that has had a significant injury on the slopes. And and the ski slope didn't go bankrupt because of it, because the, the term in law is assumption of risk. You as an adult assumed a certain risk going on here. But uh, let, let me just say, David, here's my advice. Get a letter from that ski resort, whatever it is, that they've talked to their attorney, they've looked at their insurance policy, and the insurance company they use guarantees that you are covered. 
for the advice that you gave. I think if you're doing work also for a municipality, it says here they did it for the uh, local police and fire department and aeromedical and all that other kind of stuff, being added in the insurance policy. I don't know why you would put your family's future at risk for being a good guy. It doesn't make any sense to me. Greg, and I'd like your opinion on one of the things that was said by this attorney who basically said as long as you don't have any remuneration for this service, that basically you're a good Samaritan and there won't be any problem. Um, I have my doubts. Absolutely. The other thing is the good Samaritan defense uh, basically requires three parts. Number one, you didn't know it's something that you could not have prepared for. That's not true in this case. You did know. You could prepare for it. It's not a usual and part of your customary duties. But if his group is providing for this, it is a part of their duties. The last one is remuneration. You don't charge. But he willingly accepted free skiing. He took parking passes. He t- and in most places, we call that compensation of some kind. See, I think it meets none of the three tests of Good Samaritan. This isn't driving along, seeing an auto accident, getting out of your car, and helping out. To equate those two, it, it doesn't pass the sniff test. Uh, and, and by the way, just because an attorney says, I think you're all right, I mean, those are the guys who lie through their teeth on everything. Why would you take that as gospel? I don't. You know, there's a recurring theme here that we've covered many, many times. You're not only insured for your malpractice with regards to things that happen in the emergency department. So you start treating friends and and the nurse uh, who works there, and can you write me a Z-pack? You're bare on all of that stuff. Yeah, and, and, uh, you know, I I had that one very famous case where – the uh, internist or the pathologist was walking down the hall, saw, sees his friend who's an internist and says, what do you think this is? You know, I got my big toe here. It's hurting. And uh, I think I may be getting gout. And the internist takes a look and says, yeah, probably gout. And gives him a prescription for colchicine. Well, a couple of days later, the pathologist has a rash. And uh, an hour after that, he's got Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And now he goes on to die. Well, you know, that pathologist's wife wasn't a friend of that internist. And she turned and sued him, you know, for, wait a minute. Did you warn him about uh, the reactions to colchicine and all this other kind of stuff? And uh, we think that this is very clear. I don't think it is. I think you have to be a little more circumspect about, about practicing medicine. I really try not to give out exacting medical advice to, to, to people because because uh, you know half the time when you're in there and I've got all the resources of the ER I can't figure out what you got so just sticking something in front of me and saying what's that we can't always be right Rick I mean that's just kind of the way it is well, speak for yourself yeah well I understand okay. it um, that that came up at the course today by the way with that? <clears throat> the, this idea of uh, writing prescriptions for people who are not, uh, you know, uh, who you know. And uh, if it requires a DEA number and they're a friend, they're a family member, something like that, you you could get away with that 20 years ago. Today, you can kiss your butt goodbye. And in the state of Michigan, 
you can lose your license for two years for that kind of stuff. And I just don't think it's it's worth it. You know, no, there there are there are variables about non-narcotic prescriptions as well. Different. Theoretically, if a doctor writes you a prescription, uh, you're supposed to have a medical record. You're supposed to have a history and physical exam consistent with why that prescription was given. Now, we know that a lot of us end run that, but technically speaking, that's what's required. By, well, as you will remember, uh, in um, Los Angeles, within the last uh, six or seven months, there was a raid pulled on all of the medical marijuana clinics that are sitting down there at Muscle Beach and all that area. And what they went in and just said was, show me the charts of the patients that you examined, uh, you know, the state police, California State Police went in, and it was a free-for-all. It was a bloodbath. These were people who were coming in, getting scripts, going to the shop next door, filling it with marijuana. And as soon as the state uh, just put the usual simple requirements on there, show me, show me a standard history and physical, made you determine that they were depressed, that they were this, that they were that. They couldn't do it, and uh, all of those docs were losing their licenses. I, have they settled that problem yet, Rick? And uh... well, it goes up and down. They want to close all the marijuana clinics, then they want to keep them open and set up new rules for them. It's, there's a lot of pushback for closing them now. All right, let's let's do this letter from David Essler too. I mean, uh, David's been a a real staunch supporter of us, and uh, yeah, read that one. All Rick. right, all right. This is. Um, this is actually a, a really interesting case because this stuff comes up all the time. So he, he's a Canadian. He's in Vancouver. Yes. As he calls it, uh, Raincouver. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and in any case, he was asked to comment or do an expert testimony on uh, the, this typical case. The patient comes in. He's got a cut on the finger. The doctor numbs it up, walks him over to the sink, and he's washing out his finger at the sink um, and he um, passes out, hits his head, and in this case, the patient had substantial residual neurologic deficits from this fall. And honest to goodness, we've seen this in every emergency department, uh, you know. Now, um, and so he, this person got a substantial amount of money. Based on the testimony that I saw, this person was fairly compromised. Well, that's he was compromised, but the problem is the system they use in Canada, which is this isn't a jury trial. This was a bench trial in front of a judge only mm-hmm. who, who thought that he understood without other testimony what the standard of care was and didn't realize that we've had patients wash out their own wounds forever. Yes, but you can certainly see why uh, somebody would say, um, uh, I was put at risk unnecessarily. I fainted. I didn't. I, I don't. Don't. I've never had that happen before. And you know, I've seen it at our hospital. I see it when when we bring in um, Dad to watch little Johnny get sutured, and all of a sudden Dad started looking a little pale, and he says, "I got to go check the car. Check the car. You're going to miss the best part. Look at this part here." This guy, white guy, is, is kind of getting paler as he leans up against the wall to find the doorway. But he's now lost his vision, so he doesn't even see. And um, it's, so you have to be really, really careful about this because um, I never have parents 
help in the suturing of their child. Nope. They can they can comfort the child, those kinds of things. And Pat I always, the other hand, right? And I, I always warn them. Uh, the men generally think that this is not something that is going to happen to them. I've seen it happen more to males than females. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes you say sit in a chair. Well, you got that stool over there that's got like ball bearing wheels on it. Yeah, like yeah, a skateboard. Right. <laughs> you know, you're sitting, you're going to sit on that, you know. You're that's the ejecto seat. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, um, well, Dayton, I'd be interested in your, your take on this because there, there's conflicting things here. We want the family to be involved kind of thing in some cases. Now, this obviously wasn't the family. This guy was washing out his wound at the sink without a nurse in attendance, and he was standing there. He wasn't sitting kind of thing. What, what's your thoughts? I think it's tough. Well, I think it's very tough to make that decision. I mean, we all uh, – I, I was sort of laughing at what you were describing because I can give you four or five cases that are they're just exactly what you just said. You know, uh, we always tell them have the parents sit down because they almost always get a little pale and woozy. And so what do, they, what do we put them on? We put them on your famous ejecto seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. At least they fall from a lower height. Exactly. Right. You know, right, I mean, right. that, that's about the only thing I can tell you. Um I'll, I'll give you a a, a, a similar case. Um, a, a young stalwart comes in and has tonsil, tonsillitis, and so they they give the nurse and say, "Go give him a shot of bicillin." So she goes over and he's a big physical specimen, and she says, "Lay on the gurney, and I'll give it to you in the in the buttocks." And he says, "No, no, no, no. I'll just lean over." And so she says, okay, after some argument, he just leans over the gurney. She gives him a shot. He vasovagal, passes out, and has a C-spine fracture. Oh, jeez. And and this one was pretty simple because the hospital has a policy about when you give an IM injection. But it's the same issue. Um, We get talked into doing things that we know we really shouldn't all the time uh, because we're nice people. And we want to be nice to the other people. And what we really have to learn how to do is do the right thing nicely. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and we don't teach people how to do this. So you, you either learn it or you don't as you go through, but we don't have courses to teach people how to do this. Well, the first person you save in emergency medicine is yourself. And if, if it looks down the road like this could be a problem, that maybe we ought to think about it again just a little bit. Uh, I know that I know that we've all been in that situation. Yeah, it's not a problem. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. But you know what? What you have to say to them is, you know, they make me do it. You're right. I know you're right. It's the hospital policy. It's the hospital policy. And if they found out, they might fire me. Okay, Doc, I wouldn't want to get you in trouble. Okay. Well, you know, we do see these cases where the guy's working on his, the car engine and the wrench slips, and he's got grease all over, and he's got a cut on his hand now from the, on the knuckle, and you, it's, it's absolutely filthy. And, you know, you can do all the little betadine saline preps you want. You're not going to get that dirt and grease off. And so we take people to the sink all the time. They got the soap, the water. The thing's already been numbed up, that's for sure. But, but just having people see their blood or something like that obviously could be a stimulus to this. So, I, But our hospital, we didn't have any policy about that, that a nurse had to be in attendance. And we can't, I don't think, set any standards of care here because I don't think there are any. No. But we all have seen patients get injured 
who have passed out for one reason or the other, which may have been able to be anticipated. I mean, I can certainly understand somebody passing out at the sink, washing out their own wound, um, standing there. Um, so what do we do? You know, it, there's no simple answer to this. It's sort of what's reasonable at the time. And as you pointed out, if you notice that they're not looking quite right, yeah, but you're get not them to the, the ground. They're, you're, they're, you're gone seeing some other patient. Yeah. Well, they're I'll tell in there you, by themselves. We've all done it. We've all been there, and uh, all I can say is God must be kind to me because I never had a bad thing happen. But it's all about the outcome, right? It is. Yes. I mean, you know, they fall down, they they, they get a couple of stitches in their scalp, they're they're embarrassed. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, they're not going to do anything. Now, you get a skull fracture, well, no, that, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's different. It's, it's a different deal. Now we're, now we're villains. Uh, why don't you do this uh, report from the L.A. Times, Rick? Well, it's actually, you know, I'd rather hold off on that for a bit because I'm more interested in this thing from the uh, AMA News because, uh, okay. it, it, you know, we've been following the uh, 2003 um, malpractice reforms that happened in Texas. They were huge. There was about four or five things. They had to change the Texas Constitution to get all of these four or five items imp- uh, approved. It was a pr- impressive. There's no question about the fact that Texas probably has the most doctor-friendly atmosphere at this moment in time of any state in the United States. And, and Dayton, you work in Texas. Ha- uh, have you been able to see some tangible changes as a result of this malpractice reform that's taken place there? Oh, I, I think without a doubt. It depends on which side of this argument you're on, of course, as to what you want to quote. But the the facts that are there that you are very difficult to debate anyway is the major malpractice companies that had been there before and are there after have decreased their premiums to the docs i don't think there's it's 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 well documented that's a fact the other fact is is that we've increased we've been a net importer of physicians absolutely uh, and we have more physicians both specialist and primary care than we did we could use more if anybody's listening but nevertheless there has been an influx of physicians the argument against it is of course that the the little person that was harmed isn't getting their day in court but they also argue that this decreased cost uh, that, okay, now we don't have this horrendous cost that you were complaining about, has not found its way back to the patient. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that's a that's, legitimate, uh, quite frankly, a legitimate question, is why hasn't that made itself back to the patient? Yes, and I think that one of the things it points out is is that, you know, we're all talking about, you know, if we only had tort reform, we would stop ordering all of these things. And here's a state that has had it since 2003, and their Medicare cost per patient is higher than the national average. Right. Uh, so, Dayton, you're right on. The, the costs have not gone down at all, and access to care for those who are uninsured really hasn't uh, changed at all. But there, uh, I read that 15 new insurance companies came into Texas, uh, and the fact is that they were making lots of money. They dropped the physicians' premiums by 50%, but the payouts that they've done over that time have been more less, you know, such that they've been very, very profitable. That's why everybody wanted to go in and insure uh, Texas doctors. But in any way, the AMA News on October 22nd had a thing highlighting some of the trends in in medical practice, and I just bulleted uh, a few of them. Um, 
Nearly 60% of nationwide premiums are holding steady. A quarter of them are down and one in six are up, but all by small percentages. That may be current, but that wasn't the case in 2003 when <coughs> when uh, Texas had this major reform. The premium has dropped in half. Um, there are a lot of companies now looking for malpractice insurance um, clients because the claims have fallen substantially. And the trend began in the year 2000, uh, this article pointed out. Lawyers are getting more picky because the costs to pursue suits are higher than they were in the past. Now, the doctor's company is really one of these mega companies that um, is pretty much nationwide. Now, they've bought up a lot of smaller companies. They they just went through and swept the East. The doctor's company says it closes over 80% of its claims with no payment to the plaintiff. And the amount of awards have been declining, declining since 2003. Uh, in this article, they had a quote from this guy, Mike Matry, from the Medical Liability Monitor. He says, the industry ex- is experiencing historically low claims frequency, and the dollar value of malpractice payments is at an all-time low. They also mentioned uh, the fact that a number of states have undone some of their tort reform uh, laws, including Dr. Your state. Yes, Michigan it has. Michigan and, has. And Illinois. Both both true. Uh, overturned a lot of this, at least some of this stuff on caps of pain and suffering and things like that. Well, the, the, the uh, attack is always the same, which is this is unconstitutional. Why should you be able to tell me what I can recover? That ought to be what for a jury to do and not an actual cap. And at least a couple of the states, Illinois being one, bought that argument hook, line, and sinker. Well, it's almost analogous to the motorcycle helmet laws. It's like, you know. <laughs> Which Michigan of, also overturned. All of these states are repealing these laws. And it's like, um, is this a, you know, they can make you wear seatbelts in a car. How does this transfer to, well, it's, I want to not wear a helmet. Well, it, it, let, you know, let, let, me just, work? let me just tell you. That in Michigan, this became not a medical question. It became a civil liberties question. It's like the ownership of guns. Why is the seatbelt not a civil liberties question? Uh, Good question. We don't know why. But what they said was on motorcycles that as long as you had insurance and a certain amount of money in insurance, we're not going to make you wear a helmet. There were some spurious arguments made by the motorcycle clubs and that sort of thing, that helmets actually make it worse. It causes, because the big helmet grabs you and gives you worse That's C-spine injuries. over and over I know and it. over. That is just a bunch of crap. But you know what? The, the state legislatures are not known for having road scholars sitting there taking votes. And it became a popular issue of sort of me against the government and that sort of thing. My view of it is, and I'm a good uh, libertarian, is if it, when your money runs out from this two-bit insurance policy you bought, then we get to let you die. Well, nobody wants to let that happen, I promise you that. The last two points I pulled out of that uh, article were that the, um, yes, and we've mentioned this before, the issue of inability for injured patients to seek justice is cited by the plaintiff's lawyers. The substantial reforms made in Texas in 2003 are cited as resulting in the total amount of money flowing to patients has decreased by almost three quarters. So the premiums went down 50%. Money to patients, uh, plaintiffs went down three quarters. Uh, 
And then they cite some examples of uh, high and low premiums that I just kind of pulled out some of them. These are these are extraordinary uh, uh, differences. I mean, don't practice in Dade County, Florida. If you're an internist, you'll pay $47,000. So uh, you, you ought to practice in some state like there's the lowest is practice South in Nebraska. Dakota. Uh, South Dakota is $3,600 for an internist, and Dade County, um, my uh, Florida, is 47000 mm. These numbers are unbelievable. I saw the ones for OBGYN. Uh, the highest rates, New York's um, Suffolk and Nassau counties, $206,000. Um, Nevada is not good, $168,000 for an OBGYN. And uh, the lowest are probably in the same states that uh, don't have any hospitals, and you know. Yeah. Uh, but these premiums are all over the dartboard in terms of magnitude, multiples. Well, the suit rates vary so much in the United States. If you look at Dade County, uh, uh, Florida, if you're an emergency doc, the suit rate is one suit per 6,500 visits. If you take the whole state of South Dakota, it's one suit in every 95,000 visits. Now, t- trust me on this, the guys in South Dakota don't know 17 times more than the doctors in Florida. But it's a cultural thing. South Dakota has hard-working farm people. They, they don't sue much. They don't do much when you're in Florida. It's kind of suing is kind of a way of life. It's a different culture, and they and by the way, even within states, if you look at the state of Michigan, we have the Wayne County, which is Detroit's county, and a couple of others. Well, I mean that's awful. All you got to do is get to the Republican side of the state, (laughs) and all of a sudden the suit rate drops to one fifth as much. So it really is a cultural question more than it is a science question. And are they really worse doctors in one spot or the other? It's hard for me to be convinced that we have, uh, you know, that much worse doctors in Florida than we do in Nebraska. No, I got you. Hey, listen, did you bring any cases? Yes, I did, sir. How about a case? Would you like a case? All right, let's do some cases. Now, again, we're only going to comment on filed cases but we're not going to use anybody's name. No names? Uh, It's not nearly as fun. I know it's not as fun. (laughs) Somebody mentioned to me at the national meeting, and they said, you know, in that one case, you did use somebody's name. I said, it's a published case. It's public record. He says, yeah, but we got the point without embarrassing the guy on the deal. And you know what? I I, I don't disagree with that. We don't need the name. What we need is is the story. And so uh, this is kind of way, the way it goes. Uh, failure of paramedics to evaluate teenager with a history of drug abuse who was reported to be unconscious and not breathing at the time of a 911 call. When they got there, the, uh, when the EMTs arrived, the patient was conscious and breathing upon arrival. He was not transported. He was doing well for some, for some reason. They were called back, however, to the same location, and the child was dead eight hours later. This is a $5.1 million Illinois verdict. By the way, the uh, EMTs got the go-ahead to not transport over the radio from who? A base station. 
from the physician. A doctor or a nurse? A doctor. Do you think he's involved in this? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Oh, hello. We're all here now. Um, all I can say is why you would ever show up. People said we called an ambulance because he wasn't breathing. He was unconscious. Can we think of a good reason not to transport at this moment in time? No, I can't. No. And, and the problem is with the variability of absorption of drugs, he may have had two or three ingestions that we're getting various absorptions with. Now he went down, now he's back up again, now he's down again. Uh, We don't know exactly why this happened, but just understand that if you're the medical advisor to some EMS service, this is is not good advice. And uh, if, if there's some obvious reason that you shouldn't be transporting, it better be documented, because in this case, it did not go well. How old was this person? Um... This this was a teenager. So he's a minor, basically. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, you would certainly be extra cautious in those cases. That minor's not allowed to say, uh, I don't want to... He can say it, but, you know, um, he's he is a minor. Yep. The, the, the non-transport in the pre-hospital mm-hmm. world is, I think, the one of the primary problems in their medical risk. Um, and, and I don't know all the figures nationally, Greg, but I, I know in Dallas, in the 911 system, they have almost a 50% non-transport. Mm. That means every other case, they don't transport. So they get inured to this. Yes. Uh, and and, and <coughs> it's not a rare case that they don't transfer. It's half of them that they don't transfer. Um, and they hear some stories that we never hear. And I, um, it's tough to continually teach these paramedics what you, the points that y'all just made. Uh, I mean, those of us, would we ever not transfer somebody? I mean, I'd transfer everybody. But if you did that in this system, it would break it. Yeah, it couldn't, it, it it would, couldn't do it. It couldn't operate. So it, it's, a, it's, it's much more difficult, I think, than we see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back retrospective. Let me tell you, however, what I think may have been a problem here is that we should look at these as against medical advice cases. If someone does not want to be transported, they need to go right down that five-point checklist of ours. What is their age? Do uh, Are they an emancipated minor? Can they give you know advice about themselves? Secondly, do they have capacity? How did we determine that? Did we give them alternatives? Did we tell them, you know, we we don't necessarily send you a bill right now, all that kind of stuff? Was their family involved? All the things we'd expect for against medical advice in a hospital. And and this went down, I think, based on some of the charting aspects, as well as the the fact that the child died is a tragedy. But I think that properly documented... Parents sign off on it. The kid signs off on it. Those sorts of things. It may have gone all right. And you're exactly right, Greg. I mean, all the pre-hospital systems have strict policies about this. And where they get hung up is they don't follow their policy. They don't document everything that's needed to to follow their policy. Uh, and, And whether or not in this particular case following the policy would have got them off the hook, I don't know. But it would have been better. 
I don't think there's any doubt. Oh, that's exactly right. It's a, some of this, it's how it tastes to 12 people picked off the voters' rolls who constitute the jury pool. Um, the, the science is not as good as the feeling they get, and the feeling they got is we don't give a damn, and so we're taken off. Although the sniff test on this is really against, you know, favoring an award. You yeah. One, one, one visit out. Eight hours later, the kid's dead kind of thing. It's yeah. like, holy smokes, something went wrong. And I also think you have to consider the nature of the chief complaint. Why? It's, it's not like he's got an ankle sprain or a twisted knee. He's got a loss of consciousness there. I mean, that's right, gonna, right. totally different matter. Rick, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's really easy for us to be Monday morning quarterbacks. That is for sure. Yeah. Um, but this this sounds very spooky. All right. Here's one that brings together our two favorite groups, radiology and emergency medicine. Catch this one. Failure to inform emergency room physician of possible tumor shown on the head CT scan. Man loses vision in his eye after discharge due to a swelling pituitary tumor. This is a, this is a uh, verdict in favor of the plaintiff and here's the story, because it really brought emergency medicine and and this doc, you know, right together. Somebody comes in, uh, a, I think he's in his 50s, gentleman comes into an emergency department and says, I got some problems with my vision. The emergency doc orders a, um, a uh, CT scan. A doctor who will remain nameless from radiology uh, actually reads the film and says, well, the CT scan doesn't show much, uh, but, you know, clinical correlation will be required, this sort of thing. Another radiologist looks at the film while the patient is still available and says, you know, I don't think that's right. I'd get, a, I'd get, a C, I'd get an MRI on this one. That information that those two had that discussion was not passed along to the emergency department. When the lawsuit came... The confrontation between those two radiologists did come out. And here's the good news for our listeners. The emergency medicine physician was dropped. And the radiologist paid $2.5 million. And it had to do with the simple, they knew, well, they still could have intervened, that that tumor was compressing the optic nerve. Now, as a piss ass and a neuro guy, I don't know why the emergency doc put up with, uh, you know, that CT reading. It's, the physical exam is abnormal. You know, there's something wrong here. I want another opinion or something. Well, it also gets back to the point of ordering the right test. You know, brain tumors are MRI tests, not CT tests. Right. And um, we we need to get more comfortable ordering the right test in that setting when that is the test that needs to be done. I mean, um, and I honestly believe that over time, there's going to be more and more MRIs done as these machines get faster and faster, stronger magnets. I, you know, I told you the story about the uh, Caltech. Caltech is right down the street from our hospital. So all mm-hmm. these smart people go there. Uh, uh, we've seen Nobel Prize winners in our ER from Caltech. Well, anyway, well, obviously they weren't that smart, but go ahead, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, you know, I mentioned that uh, this 
this student was jogging at night, uh, which is kind of jogging is dangerous stuff. Yeah, yeah, it really is. She tripped on the curb and fell forward and hit her face on the concrete. Broke off a couple of teeth as her, her, the whole front of her face is abraded, uh, but that's basically the extent of her injuries. And and um, I don't even know why I said this, but I I said you know we we can get a CT scan, but I don't honestly think we need that. You know, based on you know how you look and feel and those kinds of things. She said, "Don't worry about that, Doc. I can get a uh, MRI at the uh, at Caltech tomorrow. We have a seven Tesla magnet uh, MRI <laughs> over there." <laughs> you know, we're putzing around with this half Tesla magnet. Right, know. right, right, exactly. And uh, this is the this is the future. I think there's going to be this radiation issue is going to be decreased. Right. And these things are going to get faster. And you know, they're really the better study for knees and and heads and and even in this issue of, um, you know, does this person have a warning leak from a subarachnoid hemorrhage? You know, they've compared CTs and MR, and they're pretty much the same. And certainly, you're going to see a lot more pathology on an MR than you're going to see in a CT of somebody's brain. You know, you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, I don't have enough intelligence to make this story up. But it just so happens in these two radiologists who fought here, one of them was working part-time on a contract. He was in the Air Force at that time. The hospital countersued to get the Air Force to put up some money, too, because this guy was involved in the case. So this turned into a pissing contest, and all the plaintiff does in cases like that is just sits back. And Napoleon said something once which was right. Never interfere with your enemy when he's destroying himself. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Plaintiff didn't have to do anything. They got so mad at each other and fighting about contribution that all the bad crap about who was supposed to call the ER, who was supposed to talk to the doc, all that stuff, it all came out at that moment in time. So there you go, Rick. There's a, there's a case that uh, gives us a little something to think about. Well, I think it, we're, it's getting close to wrap-up uh, time here. Titan, any any uh, words of wisdom you, we can uh, depart with here? No, actually, I have fewer words of wisdom as I get older, I think, <laughs> Rick. But, but thank you for allowing me to be part of this one. Uh, I had always enjoy it talking to y'all. Well, you know, as I mentioned before, there's nobody that has your background in terms of the scope of uh, responsibility that you have. And uh, I have been an admirer of yours for a long time in that not only are you the chief medical officer, but you're at, at Baylor. I mean, you've been able to keep your foot in both camps uh, very nicely. So thank you for coming and um, participating today. Dighton um, basically gave a talk on the um, the future of mid-levels in emergency medicine. And um, uh, obviously it was a pep talk because, because we're not going to be able to accommodate um, the emergency medicine needs by just having doctors do it and frankly doctors don't need to do it all as long as they're in a position to supervise other people who have the skill sets um, and uh, so he gave a very um, a positive view of the future of mid-levels in emergency medicine which I think is totally correct and justified Gregory very good well listen we're going to close up as we always do with wine of the month now, you're all aware that we've been on a kick of uh, mid-coastal wines in California. There's, I, I want to talk about one just because 
it, it's gotten a lot of buzz. I can't afford this stuff. Oh, yeah, sure. But there, was, there is yeah. a wine called Next of Kin, K-Y-N, uh, which is California wine. It's, uh, it's uh, for 1100 bucks. You get three bottles and a magnum of this stuff. Eleven hundred bucks. Okay, Rick. Before you have a seizure, I'm let trembling. me give you the good news. Is there down the street? Down the street is uh, uh, Palmina Vineyards. They have several great wines, including uh, a Barbera, which I have tasted. It's twenty-four bucks a bottle. It's down the street. In two hours, no matter which bottle you drink, it's urine. And uh, this wine is a great wine. If you have 1100 bucks, I think you ought to drink next again. But if you're like most of us, and, and you realize if Mel was here, he'd be advising Mad Dog 2020 again because that's he never wants to spend more than two bucks a bottle on wine. Two buck chuck. Two buck chuck. But uh, Palmina Barbera 2010 is uh, very well regarded. Top-notch people think this is a a winner and a comer in California. Okay, Greg, that is the December issue. Uh, we would like to remind our two or three listeners that we really encourage them to send in those emails. We get them, and we respond pretty quickly. It's, pretty good. We don't respond just on the tapes. But I know for a fact that, Greg, that you have had personal conversations with these folks many, 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 many times. Many times. You get a free consult from Dr. Henry most of the time. Uh, so feel free to remember here. Remembering that such consultations are worth exactly what you paid for them. All right. That's it. Signing out. Gregory, thank you. Thank you, Bye. Rick. Thanks very much. Appreciate thank it. Bye-bye.